I want to uh, pray, and then we'll get into the Bible. Let's do that. Father in heaven, we, uh, we want to hear from you. We know we do that by opening this book, your word, this scripture. We need to hear from you because uh, your words are living. Uh, they are active. They work on us. They do in us what we can't do for ourselves. They accomplish your will. And so we pray that would happen in this time. So um, use me uh, as a mouthpiece, as a proclaimer. And God, would you give us all uh, attentiveness of mind and heart uh, to hear what you have to say. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we uh, hear this in the news, and it seems to be a preoccupation lately of our, of our government. Uh, uh, and they, they talk about this thing called disinformation, which is intentionally misleading, or misinformation, which is accidentally or unintentionally misleading information. There seems to be a great preoccupation with that lately, because nobody wants to be taken for a fool. We want to have the right information, and apparently those in authority seem to think that we need some help. Okay, well, we'll grant that. Uh, even this last week, I don't know if you saw this in the news, uh, Fortune magazine, that business magazine, they reported that the UN uh, Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, he intends to appoint a scientific advisory board mainly concerned about, about uh, a, uh, you know, misinformation, disinformation through artificial intelligence. Uh, I'm skeptical about any such efforts with those uh, who seem to have concentrated power, but, but we all understand that we can be misled. We, we know that. In every generation, there have been uh, occasions where what was accepted to be fact later has proven to be untrue. And not to be political here, but we've all come through this, this pandemic with COVID-19, the, the, what we were told about the, the virus, about the treatment, about the vaccine. There's largely untested hypotheses and some things were just flatly not true and to some degree we were we trusted uh, those we should trust but we were not exactly told the complete truth we were fooled now i think that just goes with the fact that good intentions are there but there are limits to human knowledge and uh, to this point though my concern is in the public discourse there's not a whole lot of humility to acknowledge that but you know, sometimes we believe something to be true because we want it to be. We just want it to be. Because it somehow satisfies some sort of short-term desire. I was reminded of a song uh, written by Kenny Loggins and Michael McDonald. McDonald. They wrote this song about, the, uh, about one who was deluded about his love interest returning that same affection. Perhaps you know, what a fool believes he sees. No wise man has the power to reason away what seems to be is always better than nothing and nothing at all. Well, on the topic of faith in God, and we know the humanists will claim that the Christian argument is circular because we trust the Bible. But I'm going to rest on this one premise this morning as we open our Bibles together in a moment, there is only one source for objective truth, and that is God. And what God says, what God says is that many people are living a lie because they have been duped. I was thought of the words of Dennis DeYoung, welcome to the grand illusion. And in fact, God has shown us. He has shown us what a fool Believes. And so we're going to look in our Bibles at Psalm chapter 14 to find out what a fool believes. 
By the way, just for, for your homework this afternoon, if, you, if you're interested, turn over to Psalm 53 and find out which verse is different because they're pretty much identical psalms. Anyway, Psalm 14 is where we'll be this morning. So let's look at that together, Psalm chapter 14. And as you turn there in your own Bibles, or you can just listen along, I'll read it for us. Hear God's word. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is the word of God. We thank him for it. So, this psalm, this psalm begins by defining the fool. And then what it does is it shows us the reason and the result of folly, foolishness. And then finally, the beginning of wisdom. And that's really how I want to unpack this psalm this morning. We're, sh we're shown uh, what a fool is, defining the fool, the reason and result of folly, and then really the beginning of wisdom. So let's look at defining the fool. Now, have you ever, do you ever talk to yourself? I do. Uh, audi you know, we probably don't do this audibly. Sometimes I actually do out loud when I'm alone. You know, if I have a task to complete and I notice that I get distracted, I actually say out loud, come on, focus. If I'm planning, you know, to, to study or, or whatever and I get distracted in some rabbit trail in a book that has nothing to do with my sermon preparation, I say, come on, focus, I'll say it out loud. Mostly I, I, I notice my self-talk when I try to do something but fail. It's last Tuesday, I fanned on the puck several times at hockey and I just said, that's lame, that's so lame. I'm, I'm feeling kind of stupid and I'm talking to myself. Or maybe, guys, you've experienced this in a home project. I measure once and cut three, four, five times, use lots of materials, or go back to Home Depot four times in two hours. I'm, and I berate myself, like, can't, can I get this right? But I do think the things that we say to ourselves, I think they're probably the most honest that we are, right? The things that we say to ourselves are the most honest. And I think that in a positive sense, we do express things in our mind or in our hearts that we find valuable, the things that we think are beautiful, what really matters. Our self-talk, of course, is also negative by the examples I gave you. We probably express our disappointments in ourselves or others. Now, my question this morning, though, as we look at what the fool believes, what is the fool what is his self-talk? What does he say to himself? And verse 1 tells us, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool, that's just simply someone who lacks sense. So what does the psalmist mean, the heart? Now, of course, we know that he's not referring to this organ that pumps the blood. Of course, that's the mind. That's the will. 
the heart is the understanding. It's the, the conscience, maybe the, the seat of emotions and, and passions. You have a heart for something, you're passionate about it. Really, I think when we talk about the heart, it's that inner person that drives us to do what we do. And what the self-talk ultimately reveals is what we truly think. And the fool's self-talk, we're told, his self-talk denies God. He denies God. Now, in our Bible text, we see the word God. That word in the Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament, is Elohim. And that's just, uh, it's generically, it's actually a plural word, but it's generically deity or deities. So, people who say that there are no deity, there is no deity of any, any kind, which we would call committed atheists, I think you'd agree they're quite in the minority. For every seven people, in the population like Sam Harris or Christopher Hitchens, if you know who they are, very famous and outspoken atheists. And I'm being generous here, if there's the, even that many. There are 93 others out of 100 who hold to some kind of metaphysical belief. There's something somewhere above and beyond us. A lot of people admittedly in the there's something, the metaphysical group, they they probably are agnostic about the question, not really sure. It's a kind of a committed to, well, there probably is a God, but hey, I'm not really sure. Now, in this psalm, David, referring to this fool who says in his heart there is no God, he isn't only referring to those who would deny all deity. Again, I think that's pretty rare. I think what he is doing is certainly including all that deny the true God who deny the Lord, all caps in your text there in the Bible, Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, meaning Yahweh, the one who has self-revealed himself. Of course, in David's time, in King David's time, he's the author of this psalm, there are all kinds of gods, right? False gods. Moabites had Chemosh. Philistines had Dagon. The Ammonites had Milcom, and they would sacrifice their children to this abomination. The Babylonians had Marduk, Egyptians had some 40 different gods, including Re, Isis, Osiris. Well, you get the point, right? Lots of gods. One of my favorite Bible stories in the Old Testament is in 1 Kings 18, Elijah the prophet, he, he wants to have a, a challenge with the, the, false, the false prophets and their, their Baal worshipers and Ashtoreth worshipers. There's 950 of these prophets that said, let's do a sacrifice challenge. You, you call on your God to burn up the sacrifice and, and I'll call on the Lord. And in the end, they dance around for hours, cutting themselves, and, and nothing happens. No fire. The, the, the bull isn't burned up. Nothing. They, and Elijah jokes with him. Well, maybe he's using the restroom. You know, he's off somewhere having a nap. And, uh, and then he, he gets the servants to pour Buckets of water on this sacrifice, absolutely soaking it. And he prays, true, the true God to reveal himself by fire. <clears throat> the sacrifice is burned up. Well, all Israel then knows there is a true God. But the psalmist, and this is in Israelites' history, the psalmist says that there's still people around. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. You see, I take it, that what the psalmist is describing, though this fool, also includes what I would call functional atheists. Functional atheists. And maybe that's some of you here. So what's a functional atheist? 
functional atheist is somebody who acknowledges God, even, even the God of the Bible. Yes, there's, there's a God in heaven. There's a God who rules over all. Now, we've got to talk about this God that the fool, including the functional atheist, may deny. The one who says there is a God, but who yet remains a fool. So who is this God? Well, as the, the scripture reveals him, the Lord, Yahweh, he has revealed himself to be holy, meaning he's apart from us. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. He is all-knowing. And because he, all, because he is all-knowing, therefore he is all-wise. He is all-powerful. He is ever-present. These are the things that the word of God reveals. He is without beginning or end. He is infinite. He is beyond time and space. There is nothing at all that exists apart from him declaring it to be. This God, Yahweh, is perfectly righteous. He does good all the time. He is loving and merciful and just. But he is also gracious to the humble and repentant. Now, if this God exists and he does, and the Bible reveals it to be true, this has implications. It has implications. I don't exist apart from God, therefore I need him. And apart from God, I really cannot know what is right, what is wise, what is good apart from him. So I must listen and obey. And because God is good and I know by my own behavior that I am not, then that demands that I come before him in humility. Now, I'm guessing most everyone hearing my voice, and if you listen to this or watch this online later, most believe in God. But the question is, are you a functional atheist? And so here's the test. Do you believe that you should submit to God without question? Or you may be a functional atheist if you somehow believe that God needs to adjust to you. That he needs to consult you. That he needs to decide what works best for you based on your own expressed desires. That's the functional atheist. The functional atheist maybe thinks that God's laws are outdated. Maybe that God is a little culturally out of touch. If he really understood our situation in society and culture, he, he would understand why, why I need to do some things the way that I do. He would understand if he understood the people around me why I can't forgive. He would understand why why. I need to move in with my girlfriend. I know we're not married, but... And he would understand if he'd get the culture, if he'd just get with the times, why, why I think love is love, meaning sex with anyone at any time, any hetero, homo, bi, pan, whatever, fill in the blank. If, if God would just understand the culture, that he, he would know that I need to, to be my authentic self, that I get to be true to what I feel. If, if God really understood my situation, he, he would get that that I can't really be pregnant right now or that I have to divorce my wife to be happy, really happy. If, if God would really understand my situation. See, if you really think these things in your heart, you're a functional atheist. If you think 
God must agree with you in anything that you want to satisfy your desires. If you think that, then listen, you are no different than the person who fashions an image out of wood and bows down to it saying, you are my God. You worship a God of your own making, not the God who has revealed himself in his word. And the Bible says, if that's you, you're a fool. Now that sounds harsh, but it's true. Now, you might be quite content with that situation right now, but I want, you, I want you to see from the psalm why that's foolish. So my second point, the reason and result of folly. Now, Kathy, my wife and I, we have, we have different standards for what to do with leftovers. You've heard me talk about this before, but it's really the perennial question, right? How, how long can it stay in the fridge before you have to throw it away? Now, now I'm realizing that this isn't just my house. This is like, I think every married couple really has this challenge. It's too old, throw it out. No, it's perfectly good. Now, my defense in the past is I'm standing here before you and I'm fine, so it must have been okay. But I, I will admit to this, I have bent. I have bent to Kathy's greater wisdom on the matter. Why? Why does it matter? Well, we understand it's bacteria. There is mold. There's pathogens, dangers hidden from sight lurking in the food and just given the right incubating circumstance that could poison me to death at some point that food is corrupted and is no longer edible so we throw it away before long long before that time when it is corrupt but we throw it away we get it right corruption that's decay it happens when some foreign organisms, parasites, get the upper hand in our food. But corruption is also moral decay. It's moral decay. Why does the fool say in his heart, there is no God? It tells us in verse 1, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. So some foreign idea, some foreign motivation has taken hold in people and it results in abominable deeds. So what are these abominable deeds? Well, they are works, we're told by the text, that are abhorrent to the Lord. So here's some examples and all we have to do is look at the Ten Commandments. So these are the things that God commands that we must do. And we're we're told not to do going against them. So we break the commandment of God when we dishonor his name. We break God's commandment when we dishonor parents. We break God's commandment when we lie about others. It's called bearing false witness. We break God's commandment when we steal from someone, when we murder, when we commit adultery. We break God's commandment when we covet. And who sees that? Just God, right? In short, all of this is sin. It's transgression. It's evil. And ultimately, it's rebellion against God. These are abominable deeds. 
And I think we all get this, that that corruption of sin, and if you don't, the stories in the Bible, the corruption of sin was introduced into the human race by our first parents, Adam and Eve. In the garden, they were told, you can eat any of the trees. This one over here, the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't, the Lord said, don't eat that fruit. That's not for you. But they didn't trust God. They disobeyed God. They reasoned in their minds. They had a better idea. They thought they knew better. And ever since then, that sin, that rebellion has infected all of us. And just as God said would happen, it ultimately kills us physically. And it killed us spiritually. The Apostle Paul quotes part of this psalm in Romans chapter 3. And then he says this in summary, which really wraps up what the psalm says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christians often memorize this to remind ourselves of the gospel, the good news. But this is the state of, of being. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's God's perfect standard and all of us are down here. We don't measure up. And all no one's excluded. Continuing verse 2 of the psalm, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, and that's literally sons of Adam, Ben Adam. So, relating back to the garden, we're all children of Adam. The Lord looks down to see these children of Adam, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. What's the answer? Does the Lord see anyone righteous? Nope, not there. Verse 3, they've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have all. And we have to think this through. Every last man and woman on the face of the earth, from the smallest and most seemingly innocent child to the oldest among us, all. And they don't just, let's put us in this, we don't just sin alone. The psalm says, together they have been corrupt come corrupt so they we conspire with others to do evil we give each other evil ideas and we reinforce those evil ideas they don't seek god meaning they don't believe he has any authority in their lives they behave as if he doesn't exist so what they do is they devise, devise new and imaginative ways to sin and to top it all off to top it all off they turn and attack god's people for their faith the ones that the lord calls righteous Verse 4, have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who, who eat up my people as they eat bread and who do, do not call upon the Lord? Verse 6, you would shame the plans of the poor? Now we see this today. Now I'm not taking this as a, a, a point of pitying ourselves. It's just a, a, a bare fact. What Jesus told his disciples, and so this is for us too, he said in the world you'll have trouble. Tribulation, he used that word. John 16, 33. So those who are counted among the righteous, according to God, those who cling to God's word, to God's promises, they are considered, and we know this today, not surprised by it, we, if you're on the side of God, considered hateful, bigoted, backwards, intolerant, puritanical, and they mean that in a bad sense, unloving and intolerant. That's what they say. It's, it's a sum total of all of this this corruption attacking the ones who would seek righteousness at some level. 
And the fools who say there is no God, they sit in their think tanks and, and their expert panels on TV and their meetings in the government bureaucracies and they, and they think they're eminently wise. And some of them even claim to know God. But they have no knowledge of Him. Quoting the Lord's own words through the prophet Isaiah, the apostle Paul wrote this, 1 Corinthians 1. The Lord says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Now, what do we do with that? Now, they are fools because they deny God. Should we then, believers in Jesus, take the stance that we disdain them? No, for the one who truly says in his heart there is no God, we remind ourselves, apart from the grace of God, I would be in that same seat. I would be that same scornful one. No, we must pity those who are far from God because God will thwart their wisdom and God will one day judge. So that's not our job. But the so-called wisdom of the wise, if it is in his heart, he says there is no God. Think this through. If he says there is no God, he will not find the ultimate. He will not find the answers he's seeking. That wisdom may play well with the culture, but it is a dead end. If you try to be wise by excluding and ignoring and denying the one who is all wise, where do you think that ends up? Well, this brings me to the third, very basic, simple point, the beginning of wisdom. The fool is defined, the, the end and the reason for folly, and now the beginning of wisdom. So, let's start with some elementary school logic, okay? Easy to follow. If you want an apple, you won't find it on an orange tree, obviously, right? If you're thirsty, go to the river, not the desert. Very basic. Little children can understand that. Now, none of us wants to be counted as a fool. And if you do not want to be counted as a fool, simply find wisdom. And looking in this psalm, we can find it. And many have already found that wisdom today as you sit here this morning agreeing with what the psalmist says. Looking at the psalm, indeed, we can find it. Now, it's not stated directly that way, but I want you to follow me in this logic. Okay, the psalm pairs foolishness with sin. Foolishness is paired with sin. So what follows that wisdom is righteousness. Look at verses 5 and 6 in your Bibles. For God is with the generation of the righteous. The Lord is his refuge. So if God is with the righteous, it follows that he is not against them, right? That's a simple logical statement. And if you are among those who are counted righteous by God, it is because he is with you. And he, if he is with you, therefore you can take refuge in him. Now, we know what David has already said. All are corrupt. Now that's us. That's everyone. Everyone does abominable deeds. Everyone has sinned. So here's, here's what we 
already understand. Many of you have internalized this and you believe this to be true. See, the amazing thing is that the very same God that stands as judge over our sin, he is also our refuge from that same judgment. Let me say that again. The same God that stands as judge over our sin, he is the same God who is our refuge from that judgment. And this is where humility comes in. To be counted righteous by God requires a particular kind of posture to start. It says this in Proverbs chapter 3, 34. Towards the scorners, he, this is referring to God, towards the scorners, God is scornful. So if you scorn God, he is scornful towards you. But to the humble, he gives favor. To the humble, he gives favor. Quoted in the New Testament, both James and Peter, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. So if you stand proudly before God, you are saying to God, I expect you to be my enemy. Now, does anyone think that that is a wise position? To take a position where God actively opposes you, well, it's a rhetorical question. I think, no. But let's look at this, this humble. What happens to the humble? The humble receives grace. Well, how does that happen? See, this is this posture towards God. The humble person submits to God in everything, right? So that humble person has to agree with what God says about how the world's created, about the order of things, the humble person has to agree with what God says about me. And if his, if his word says, I'm corrupt and do abominable deeds, I have to agree with him because he knows. He knows. That's humility. And when we both know and admit to God that we are lost, that we're sinful, that we do these evil deeds, that that's our inclination. When we admit that, it opens up the way for God to be gracious to us. So let me ask you this morning, have you humbled yourself before God? Have you come before him, acknowledged your own sin and sinfulness? And as you look at the course of your day and the course of the last week and the last month and the last year and the entirety of your life, and you see, I've sinned this way, I've sinned that way. You acknowledge before God. And if you take God's word to heart, you know that there are ways that you have sinned that you haven't even understood. That sin has crept its way into the entirety of your being and you do not even know how it works its way out. If you come before God like that, so let me ask you, have you submitted to him? See, the psalmist understands something here. He's included in all have become corrupt, all have done abominable deeds, but he's, he's, he's acknowledging that God's got to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. Verse seven, here's where we see the grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is that good thing that we get that we did not earn or deserve. And so he asks for it. Verse seven, oh, look at this like a prayer. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. 
When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Now David prays for Israel. He's praying for the people of God to find salvation out of Zion. But what he's doing here is he's claiming a messianic promise. Zion, that's the, the city of God. It's, in a sense, it's like the, the spiritual headquarters of, of Israel's forever king. God's anointed. He's praying that God's anointed would accomplish salvation for God's people. He's saying, I need your anointed one to rescue me. I need your anointed one to save me. So David sees this in this psalm probably as a, as a triumph of, of Israel's, oh, sorry, a triumph over Israel's political enemies. But there is a broader application here. This is for the whole people of God, not just ancient Israel. Because he has now fulfilled this ultimately in his son, the son of God, where Christ himself has triumphed over man's spiritual enemy, which is sin. So, where the wages of our sin, that is to say what we deserve, where the wages of our sin is death to us, and that means condemnation, Romans 6, 23. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all this is predicated on humility. Humility. I'm lost. I need you to save me. And it's a gift for all who believe. All who believe. Believe in what? I'll say it again. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has become our refuge when he went to the cross for us. He bore the full penalty of our sin before the Father on our behalf. If you've put your faith in him, that is absolutely and fully accrued to you so that you could be absolutely and completely forgiven. And not only that, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, not only are you considered guiltless before God, based on what Christ has done for you, you are counted in God's presence to have the very righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And that is a glorious gift. That is the salvation that comes from Zion. It comes out of Zion because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became sin for us, and he is indeed our refuge from the wrath of God. So if you want wisdom, you find it by trusting, by believing in Jesus, Savior and ruler, ruler of your life. And if you've believed, you will be counted righteous. And I think you'd agree, that is the epitome of wisdom. The Bible says this, without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is God. Forever, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See, it's a humble seeking. It's a humble seeking. So if you're a believer in Jesus today, you have access to a storehouse of wisdom. That wisdom began by humbling yourself before God and receiving the gift of eternal life through Christ. But that wisdom is given to you daily whenever you would ask so that you could choose moment by moment the path of righteousness versus the path of folly, the path of wisdom versus the path of sin. And while we stumble 
and get it wrong sometimes. Christ's sacrifice for us was once and for all time and forevermore. So let me encourage you, keep looking to Jesus. Well, what a fool believes, there is no God. Atheists, idolaters, functional atheists, fools, according to the scripture, but the last word is God's word. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Pray with me. Father, we do not want to be counted among the foolish, but among the wise. And it's not because we are wise in ourselves, but simply because we humbled ourselves before you and trusted what Christ has accomplished. I pray for all who are in the sound of my voice, all who are encountering your word this morning, that if they've been counted to this point among the fools who say there is no God, Lord, that this day, by your grace, by your mercy, you would make them aware of their need for a Savior in Jesus who died for them and rose again. And God, for all of us who are considered by you to be righteous because we are trusting in your Son, would you grant us the grace to continue walking in that wisdom that we may honor you all the days of our life until the Lord Jesus returns in power and glory. Keep us faithful to that day. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.